one of the concerns that I've had is that that these these new strands that are being created are not effectively rebuking the poison seeds that the UMC swallowed. So it, it seems to me inevitable that 10, 15 years down the line, there's just going to be a, a replication of, of what we've seen in the United Methodist Church. Do you think that, that the people responsible for this new strand are keeping an eye on that and that it is uh, that good guardrails are being established, or do you think that um, we would be right to be concerned about the future of the GMC if we don't have a, a firmer rebuke of subjectively oriented materialistic liberal theology? So I think O'Reilly Case, who was part of the confessing movement, is, is right on this. Um, I've read only a couple things by him mm -hmm. and his analysis of how the general board of higher education and ministry in the 1980s mm -hmm. switched from um we have the 13 official seminaries and then we have those like evangelical theological seminary that are approved uh, as alternatives to the 13 official seminaries and his analysis in the 1980s how that switched from Wesleyan seminaries like Oral Roberts University, like uh, the seminaries in the Church of the Nazarene or the um, Wesleyan Church or the Free Methodist Church to the Reformed seminaries like Princeton uh, and some of the other seminaries, I think is are the guardrails for the Global Methodist Church going forward that the seminaries that will be approved, Princeton might get in. I don't think Harvard Divinity School is going to get in, or Yale Divinity School is going to get in. Uh, they are, they don't subscribe to Wesleyan theology. Mm -hmm. um, excuse me. And there's no Wesleyan House of Studies at these seminaries, and so I don't get the impression as long as Riley cases in the Global Methodist Church, mm -hmm. that these seminaries are going to be approved if they don't teach Wesleyan theology. Um, I clearly see um, that there is a possibility that there will be a replication in the Global Methodist Church 10 to 15 years from now. Mm -hmm. uh, Scott Jones, the Bishop of the Texas Conference, came and also spoke to the, the North Georgia Conference delegation and he stated that his view of moderate Christians is uh, liberals 10 to 15 years later. So um, they're moderate today, right? but 10 to 15 years from now, their theology will be liberal. Yeah, yeah. And so I see some folks trying to put some guardrails in, and that really is the seminaries. Now, the question I have about the Methodist seminaries are how do you juxtapose the teachings of Wesley and liberation theology and liberal theology yeah. and move away from orthodoxy when Wesley embraced orthodoxy? Right. And so this is where I, with your black Methodist friends who just want to be in the corner, yeah. we do liberation theology in the black church, mm -hmm. but we also offer people Christ. <laughs> yeah. And we also do, you know, small groups and discipleships 
we don't just do liberation theology because I got to be honest with you, I got a degree in African-American studies. Mm -hmm. The NAACP grew up a black liberation movement or black lives matter, excuse me, is to me an extension of the NAACP, Malcolm X, uh, the Black Panthers, all of these civil rights movements weren't in the black church. So I'm not really, I don't get upset when Black Lives Matter says something that I disagree with mm -hmm. because they're not in the black church. Um, we in the black church can do justice and salvation. Mm -hmm. I have some problems with churches mm -hmm. that do justice and don't do salvation. Right. Yeah. Because I can just turn on the local news and see folk who need to get saved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the we have a holistic theology in the black church that I'm not seeing in some of the liberal white liberal churches. I'm not I'm just not seeing it. Well, and that's that's a lot of the conflict that was in the 1980s around GBGM was the they were training their missionaries and I mean, I was born in 84, so I, I, I shouldn't pretend like I... Uh, just secondhand, it, it seems that GBGM prioritized materialistic uh, benefit rather oh, at the expense of offering Christ and, and any sort of exclusivity around Christ, that any, any sort of theology that smacked of, you must be in Christ to receive salvation. None of that should be associated with GBGM mission and ministry, um, which... If you're a biblically recognizable Christian, you know that there are problems that come when you're no longer speaking about the exclusivity of Christ. Um, with with respect to, I mean, I, I do. It, it's an itch I want to scratch. Part of my history was um, my mother and father grew up in the '60s. They very much um, valorized the the cultural revolution of the 1960s. All of it, you know. So it's not just uh, MLK, but also Malcolm X. It's 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 not just uh, the war on poverty. It's it's guerrilla warfare. Well, I wouldn't say my parents love guerrilla warfare in the streets. You know, they wouldn't say that. But but I grew up with this this love of uh, an insistent rejection of inequality in America on racial lines, especially. And, and that's very much a part of me. And then I went to a magnet school in Tulsa where half the population was black, but I saw the, the cultural separation that, that was, well, that is still very common, you know? I mean, um, and it's not, it's not just that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. Uh, it's, I mean, all day, every day, really, even when you get black and white folks in, in the same building, people break off by affinity group. You know, and so I intentionally tried to make friends with other black students, and they just thought I was weird and crazy. And and my white friends, they just didn't have anything to say about it, you know. And then I've mostly gone, I went to academia, and then I went to do ministry in areas that are mostly white. But I've still very much been concerned about how white and black folk get along in America, because um, I thought we were done with this racial animosity and resentment bit. But the way that we address inequality and disparity today very much has to do with our faith. You know, so yes, I expect for BLM to have a neo-Marxist approach to race, which is very much based on here's how things are, so we need to lift these people up and push these people down.
And you can have a surface reading of that in, in Christianity until you realize it's God who does this, you know, and a lot of this only happens on the other side where God is a perfect judge. But anytime you see central organization from the state, you see perpetuation of cycles of victimhood and, and, and hatred and animosity. So I want to get off this train where we're trying to, to force every, I just want to go ahead and live in the, the future. And that's what I've been trying to do. But you've got a lot of folks in BLM in particular saying that's a racist. If you say you're colorblind, you're a racist. If you say that you're just not going to see race, well, you're a racist. And I'm going, I have to get off of this train. You know, I, I can't, you know, as I talk to my brother Odell, I can't be seeing him as a black man and fundamentally different from me in any, any way. Sure, he's had different experiences than me, but so I have a lot of white people, you know. So I just, who is Jesus to you? That's going to be my number one most important question. And then after that, we can figure everything else out. But if, if the primary thing in life is we got this race thing that we got to deal with, and then black, uh, the church has to come alongside entities that are not confessing Christ as Lord and Savior, and we got to deal with this program, I'm going, no, 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 no. They've got a completely different approach to how to solve this than we do. If they want to have racial resentment, they can do that over there. But once we have that in the church... You know, I got to tell you, um, I don't know if you saw it, around Thanksgiving, we have this program within the United Methodist Church called Rethink Church. I'm sure you've seen it. And all everywhere I went on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, they were, program, they were plugging this podcast with Mark Charles. Do you know who he is? So I would call him an open race hater and race baiter. You know, I, he, he, he actively says white people are no good <laughs> in 10 different ways, you know, and the whole podcast was we should not celebrate Thanksgiving. My denomination is paying money, my apportionment dollars, to circulate that message online representing me and my, and I'm just going, I got to get off of this train. You know, if this is the direction the United Methodist Church is going of open race resentment and uh, 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 collective guilt, you know, I believe in the collective guilt of Adam, and that's about it. You know, I don't know that there's a way for us to go into the future. You know, and this is the conversation I'm having with our our brothers and sisters in Africa. We got the Christmas covenant that's just saying, let's just split up. You know, we'll have some money and some stuff in common, but let's not be accountable to one another. I'm I'm thinking that's the wrong direction to go. I'm thinking the promise of the Bible is all the nations together here and now. But I don't know that we can do that if we continue to hold hands with the world, and do things the way the world does. So uh, I, I've, I've had all these thoughts in my head. I've thought about you so much over the last couple months because I know that you see things. I mean, you've had your own walk, but you're so thoughtful and you're so intense. So as I say all that out loud, how much of that seems right? And then how much seems like it's, it's not really where the church needs to be right now? So it's clear that the Apostle Paul wrote in uh, 1 Corinthians that we are to be engaged in the ministry of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. So the question is, where um, are we involved in the ministry of reconciliation? And there seems to be an acknowledgement of historical wrongs that are being addressed in the United Methodist Church. Mm -hmm. Um, what I don't see is what I see in the United Methodist Men in Alpharetta, Georgia, where St. James United Methodist Church 
which is a black congregation, which is less than a mile away from Alpharetta First United Methodist. In June of 2020, when the height of the racial protest that led in some instances to riots decided we're going to get together for Bible study and prayer. Mm-hmm. That would later um, result into a conference. Um, and we had black men and white men at a conference talking about race. Mm-hmm. Now it was online because of the pandemic. Right. That ministry is now is more than two years old. What I don't see, I see an argument in academia that is now in our seminaries and now um, in some of our, our, our boards and agencies and may even be, I'm, I'm sure, I'm going to say it's in our pews, but what I don't see is the Ministry of Reconciliation where we have folks across the table in Bible study and prayer, mm-hmm. seeking the face of God outside of the churches in Alpharetta, whom tend not to be liberal. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm stating that because there have been some attempts in North Georgia to get black churches and white churches together. And then there's an attempt and there's some progress, but long-term longevity Hmm, i got some questions i have some questions right and uh when i get to a fairly conservative black church and a a fairly conservative white church who are now going into two and a half years of bible study and prayer and now another white church has joined them i'm looking for fruit Mm -hmm. because what is the prophet a man, if he gains the whole world, he loses his own soul. So uh, to sum that up, yes, you're going to continue to see the push by Black Lives Matters. You're going to continue to see the push for reparations. You're going to continue to see the push for righting historical wrongs. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Charles, I've heard speak. I understand where your angst comes from mm-hmm. uh, and hearing him speak. Um, and I think he's speaking for a lot of indigenous folk in mm-hmm. this on this continent. Right. Um, the question of how, how do we reconcile? I got I have some questions for Mark Charles. Right. Um, yeah, he came to a thing in Oklahoma where I'm at, where mm-hmm. uh, the it was a seminar on the things that John Wesley said about Native American tribes and how he was a racist. And um, they invited the whole conference and the uh, Oklahoma Indian Missionary Conference, which has the same borders, but it's a missionary mission conference. I was the only white clergy who showed up because um, I, I care about this stuff. But it, it um, I, I try not to sound like a stereotypical conservative. It seems to me that... Um, that one, there is no way to right the wrongs of the past, no matter how much apology or groveling is doing. You know, when when we were seeing the riots in 2020, so many white people getting down on their knees and, and saying apologies. You know, I, I, I think it's good for people to have humility, 
But to imagine that modern day avatars are people who, uh, modern day people are avatars of those who came before, I think is, is weird, but also I, I think a perpetual posture of, of sadness and subservience on one part and then trying to lift up this, this other, I think it's a dysfunctional way of being in relationship. Um, and I don't think it leads anywhere good. I think, I think um, and this kind of shows who I've been listening to, but uh, up until the 1960s, you saw the black population in America materially improving um, from the moment that they were set free. And then starting in the 1960s, something happened with the black family, with black income, um, incarceration rates. A lot of these things took a turn. It was like 1968. Um, and I, I think part of that, I've told you, part of it is my conspiracy is I, I think CIA with COINTELPRO ruined a lot of black um, structures. But I think a lot of it also is that um, liberal ideology infantilized black people, made them less resilient than other people, created this narrative that black people have been through so much now that they're just broken. And I think they did a similar thing to Native Americans where with good intentions, they said, we need to give them their space now. We need to, we need to throw a lot of money at them and give them space. And I think that the impact that that's had, when you infantilize somebody and give them a bunch of stuff, is you um, completely strip them of agency. And um, that's why we see what we see today. Whereas if we could acknowledge there is no way to right the wrongs of the past, but we can be who we want to be today. We can be equals today. We can have equal justice under the law, we can, uh, which, yeah, that, that hopefully fits CRT, but we, if we give up on righting the wrongs of the past and we just be who we're supposed to be, be God's kingdom people today, then I think that solves a lot of things, but I think that's something only the church can do. I don't think that Muslims can do it. I don't think that atheists can do it. I think we're the only ones who can do that, and I feel like within the mainline Protestant tradition, but especially within the UMC, we have adopted a worldly neo-Marxist understanding of how to create a future where there are no disparities whatsoever. Even though it's never been seen, we're going to do it in the name of Jesus. And I think that that is um, going to do the same thing that prohibition did to the church. You know, prohibition, we thought we were just going to take away people's desire to get drunk, and not only did we fail, but we were worse off when it was all over. Um, so anyway, that, that's uh, the reflections of a hick pastor in Nowata, Oklahoma, that nobody should care about. But um, it's, it's just stuff that I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely interested in, as I know that you are as well. And so uh, can you speak—are you sticking with the UMC until they change their stance on um, homosexuality, or are you pretty much on your way out the door, or do you want to stay private about this? <laughs> So let me state, I, I do see clearly, um, in African-American studies, we call it co-option. Uh -huh. um, there is a co-option of some of the ideas in African-American studies that have uh, made their way into several other fields. And it's not something that we necessarily subscribe to. And neo-Marxism has a strain mm -hmm. in African-American studies, and that's evident in Cornell West. He's one of the leading scholars in African-American studies. Would you put James uh, Cone there as well? <sighs> okay, forget about that. We can. I, I didn't want to challenge you. Keep keep going. <laughs> no, I would. So there, there's that argument. 
Um, I think Cone is really for the black church. He just uses some, I think Cornell West is much more pronounced for than sure. neo-Marxism for sure. than James Cone. Yes. Um, I wouldn't put the majority of folk in African-American studies in the neo-Marxist camp. Like that's, that is a minority of, of folk. Um, so I'm a little concerned at the direction that the United Methodist Church is headed in mm-hmm. uh, because clearly I see the neo-Marxism and some of the leadership of the United, the boards and agencies of the United Methodist Church as a potential solution to solve problems. To me, neo-Marxism is the other side of the coin of German theological liberalism. And that this is another Eurocentric idea that seems to solve the world's problems. And it doesn't take into account how Africans and Asians actually what what our worldview is. Yeah, the whole idea is everybody just needs to believe like we believe and then it'll all be perfect, you know? Right. (laughs) So let me give an example of that. Yeah. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois, yeah. who taught at Atlanta University, which is the predecessor to Clark Atlanta University, he went and did a postdoctorate at the University of Berlin after he got his Ph.D. from Harvard. And he discovered Marxism at the University of Berlin and brought it back to Atlanta University. Well, the clerk, the faculty at Atlanta University. Had to correct W.E.B. Du Bois's philosophy Mm -hmm. because they didn't feel that Marxism was going to work for black students at Atlanta University. Yeah. Let me, let me give you another example. Um, Benjamin E. Mays was the president of Morehouse College. He embraced the social gospel of Walter Rauschenbusch and brought it back to Morehouse College, taught Martin Luther King. Benjamin E. Mays got pushback from the faculty at Morehouse College because they did not subscribe to the social gospel Mm -hmm. because Walter Rauschenbusch, who spoke, uh, Walter Rauschenbusch is Rochester, New York. Um, Susan, he, he was him and Susan B. Anthony. They're pushing women's rights, but he also lived in Rochester during the time of Frederick Douglass. We can't find any, any kind of friendship, any kind of, philosophical agreement between Frederick Douglass and Walter Rauschenbusch. So the black faculty at Morehouse College pushed back at Benjamin Mays Mm -hmm. against the social gospel. So when we see leading black intellectuals like Benjamin Mays Mm -hmm. and W.E.B. Du Bois bringing the social gospel as well as um, um, Marxism to Atlanta University and Morehouse College, what we see is the black faculty saying, no, we're not going to do this. Well, and it seems like they did have those moorings then, but those moorings have been lost now. I would agree because some of the um, clergy in the United Methodist Church Mm -hmm. have gone to white seminaries. They've gone to even black seminaries where this is taught. one of the problems that some of the f- folks at black seminaries and black clergy have with me is that I've got a degree in African-American studies. I bring a completely different perspective to the table other than what Europeans thought about the social gospel and Marxism and 
I don't subscribe to that. And so I don't push that. And I teach, hey, this is what the Ethiopians, this is what the Coptic Orthodox believe. Mm -hmm. This is what Africans believe um, before colonialism. That's not as those are elective courses at most white universities. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a battle within the black church that I clearly see because even that made its way into impact church and there was a pushback. Yeah, it's really there's 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 cultural waters we're swimming in. Well, so it's it's hard to say how much people actually believe because modern polling is is obviously problematic. Then you can only speak about what cultural elites believe. And we do have cultural elites within the church, uh, within the United Methodist Church at least. We have a very elite-driven um, body. Uh, UM News did a, a poll, 2018 I want to say, where it was discovered at least 40% of people in the pews are very traditional. And then uh, another 25% are, are pretty uh, conservative in some sense. The majority of people in the pews in the UMC actually do not lean left. But the vast majority, now 100% of our bishops in America lean left. Um, so there's just been this um, monopolization of a certain ideology, not, not just within one of the larger topics I'm wanting to start reporting on is wherever you've seen postmodern liberal ideology enter into an institution, by nature it just takes it over, um, whether it be religious or not. It's, it's, it's something that... Uh, well, I, I don't want to use nasty descriptors, but it's something that just takes over and grows. You know, so I, I've I've been concerned about that. It's just so strange that you can have an institution founded on John Wesley, which is very explicitly concerned with personal holiness and uh, accountability um, and exclusivity. Exclusivity. He would he would kick tons of people out who were not serious. You start there. And then you get here, and you still call yourself Methodist. That's just so strange to me. Um, I want to ask you about two sort of conspiracy things, see if you know anything about them, that kind of overlap. Um, One is liberalism in 17th and 18th century Germany, the Tübingen School and all this, von Harnack. I've heard a, a guy named James Lindsay talk about the overlap between these thinkers and the occult. Have, do you know anything about that? No, I don't. Ah, okay. I'll find I'll find a good resource. I'll come back to you about it because I find that so interesting. the The second thing that I thought would be interesting to have you talk on is uh, I didn't know about your exposure in Ethiopia, but you were there twice for prolonged periods of time. It's the only um, nation in Africa that was never um, colonized by Western forces. I don't think it's ever been defeated in a battle uh, or in a war. Uh, it's been going through a civil war recently that I thought was dying down, but I think it flared back up. But this is the place where the Ark of the Covenant supposedly is in an Eastern Orthodox or in a Ethiopian Orthodox church there. I wondered if you had any insights as to what is exceptional about Ethiopia, where not only has it been able to avoid a lot of these these nasty negative things, but supposing that the Ark of the Covenant is actually there. What's unique about Ethiopia? Why why is it this um, historically exemplary place? Is it just luck of the draw, or do you think that something's going on there? 
So I want to do, I'm going to answer that question, but I also want to get back uh, briefly. I want to touch on this. Yeah, please this do. Yeah, go ahead. Colonialism and post-colonialism. Yeah. Um, I, I see that as strains in African-American studies. I see that as strains in the academy. I see that now as strains in the black church. Again, we have this saying in African-American studies, when you study history, do not begin with slavery. Right. So I cannot start with colonialism. And this is where a lot of folk want to put their pen down on a map. We start here, we start with the doctrine of discovery. We start with whatever um, doctrines the Catholic church gave the Portuguese and the Spanish to go be and Italians to go be explorers and whatever they discovered they claim for. That's um, part of history, but that isn't the whole story. So when I study European history, the I, coincidentally, the dark ages were the time periods in which the Moors ruled Spain and Italy. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a book called When Black Men Ruled Europe. Um, and so we've got to deal with how we see history and how we see race, but we can't start with colonialism. Right. That just, for me, that's just disingenuous world history. Yes, I'm 100% um, with you. Yes. But just, and, and dealing with, um, I had to state that, and I'll restate your question again, because okay. I, I, that was, I, that was burning. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, I'm glad, I'm glad you did that. Well, so, uh, and you, uh, for me, it begins in a confessional place. I just believe that we, we all equally inhabit God's image and the fall of Adam, and that that does not fall down along racial lines. And so, to my understanding, I like Thomas Sowell's theory as to why it was that Africans did not become imperial forces and Europeans did. He locates it primarily in navigable waterways. You know, commerce in, in Africa just wasn't able to grow as fast as in Europe. Uh, it, it just logistically was not possible until modern uh, tran transit uh, tech, and now Africa's catching up. Um, but I don't see disparities as a result of white people are just more evil or more hungry for power or resources. I, I, I think that we are all equally bent towards sinning and in need of salvation by Jesus, and were the, the shoes put on the other feet— you would also see um, uh, uh, coercion and abuse of power. And that's nothing against black and brown people. That's just to say we're all equally human and in need of— so I, I think if we don't have that opinion and we say white people are uniquely evil, they're colonizers, and, and their, their, their ideas are uniquely garbage and toxic, then I, I'm going, okay, this is racism. But if it's Yes, they're responsible for all these bad things where we need to acknowledge that. I have no problem with acknowledgement. Um, and we need to rebuke that and turn away from that and do things differently now. That's all fine. Uh, but if, yeah, if history begins with colonization and slavery, then you're going to have continued racism. These are the historical bad guys. These are the historical good guys. Let's just continue this forward another generation. So I'm, I'm, I'm very glad for people like you who just go, I don't find that helpful or interesting. You know, let's let's not do that. So, uh, did you hear any of that reflected mm -hmm. in my question about Ethiopia, or were you just thinking I got to come? Okay, you did. Okay, so correct what you heard there. No, I, I had to address that because we see Europeans as colonizers. Yeah, we don't see Africans as colonizers, and that's historically inaccurate. Okay, sure. Yeah, uh, because Hannibal 
marched across the Alps and conquered Rome. Mm -hmm. um, and so he wasn't the first uh, Moorish leader to conquer Europe. And so we see from the year 1711, when Jabal Tariq crosses Tangiers, uh, crosses from Tangiers to um, Spain and landed on an island with a big rock, which is now known as Gibraltar, okay. which is a transliteration of the name Jabal Tariq. The Moors from 711 to 1492 ruled Europe. All right. So I, I from a world history perspective, mm -hmm. we can't just start with colonialism I hear you. in the 16th century. I hear you. Um, now, Ethiopia and its uniqueness, I don't know the answer to that other than it's in scripture. And the reason I say that is because Hitler and Mussolini marched on Addis Ababa in 1935 and destroyed the city and exiled uh, Haile Selassie to London. And there was the Italian occupation until 1941, which is when World War II started. And then Hitler came back with Churchill and the British and defeated the Italians. However, during that six year period, the Italians were not able to establish a colonial government. And so from 1935 to 1941, it is known as the Italian occupation and not colonialization. Prior to that, the Arabs have been trying for centuries to take Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the Arabs took Egypt in the seventh century. Uh, by the 16th century, the Arabs had taken Nubia and Ethiopia was was a prize. The Portuguese also tried in the 16th century mm -hmm. to take Ethiopia as well. Uh, the Ethiopians have defeated the Portuguese, they've defeated the Arabs, they've defeated the Italians, and defeated everybody up until 1935. Um, and I don't know what other than scripture. Uh, and because, of the, because of the eunuch, or do you see any other scriptures pertaining to Ethiopia? There are some in Isaiah. There are some in particularly in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also some scriptures in reference to Egypt. Yeah. Uh, but Egypt was conquered by the Arabs. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there's still this, this vibrant community of Coptic Christians in Egypt. Right. Um, but Orthodox are the majority in Ethiopia. Right. Uh, and the Ark of the Covenant is said to be at St. Mary's in uh, Aksum, which was the former capital of Abyssinia. Ethiopia is a Greek word. Abyssinia is the, the indigenous okay. name of what, what we call Ethiopia. Uh, Aksum was the capital in antiquity. And so it is stated that the Ark of the Covenant is there. The, the priest at, at St. Mary's will not allow anyone to see it, to right. verify, but yeah. that is what they believe. Yeah. I hope it's true. I, I just, it really bothers me that we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. So that's where, it just seems, you know, it's so central to the story of the Old Testament. And I understand that the, the veil of the temple was torn and God is, is no longer mm -hmm. residing preferentially between the cherubim on the, the Ark. But it just, it's such a terrible loss historically. Uh, I mm -hmm. want it to be there. So I, this is where my mind goes. I, I just, uh, there's the main story we're given and the things that we're told to care about, and then there's just where my mind wanders. Uh, Let's wrap it up with talking about uh, mm -hmm. the tradition of Methodism, because as I understand your, your telling of the story of Methodism, the reason why you've, you've come in and stayed 
primarily has to do with um, effective mission and ministry um, and them having made a, a, a place for you to plug in authentically in Atlanta that, that might not be in place in other annual conferences. Um, looking 20 years into the future, it's impossible to say how all of these dynamics are going to to, to play out, um, I, I'm, I'm overseeing two very small rural churches in northeastern Oklahoma that are appalled at what they're seeing on the denominational level, the general church level, and are seriously exploring disaffiliation. Um, I, I, I saw a brief thing you put out saying that United Methodist men in North Georgia will continue to happily serve Methodist con- congregations that disaffiliate if they want to. Um, I know that um, Westpath is positioning itself to also serve disaffiliating Wesleyan Methodist bodies. Um, do you? What do you foresee? I mean, yeah, this is what a lot of people online are doing right now. They're making prognostications of the future with the dynamics as you see them within Methodism, at least in America. What What do you prognosticate we're going to see over the coming decades? Say. So a couple of things you earlier asked me, what am I going to do? Am I going to be in the United Methodist Church? Yeah. And I, I, I forgot I did. I am going to be in the United Methodist Church. OK. I don't know for how long. Yeah. We are not having conversations about disaffiliation at Impact Church. Uh, I don't know too many black churches that are. I can tell you that Black Methodist for Church Renewal is talking about what's going on in the United Methodist Church. And that started at the conference in 2019, which was like six weeks after the special session of the general conference. So it isn't like black churches are not aware of what's going on. Um, they're talking about it. There's been no action, no movement. Um, so- six of the churches here have disaffiliated uh, we anticipate six of the black churches here have disaffiliated. We anticipated that they were, we believe that they were going to close, and that's why they chose to disaffiliate. Hmm. Um, but there's a lot of talk um, because, uh, well, let me say this black folks are institutionalists, and so we're going to stay with the institution. Okay. Um, the global Methodist church may have some sympathetic folk in the black church. But uh, when it comes to things, uh, black, church, black folks are not early adopters to a lot of things. This, this got to get its feet and its bearings first. I hadn't and heard so that when before. You ask, That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, have you? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't anticipate too many black churches leaving. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the Windsor Village in Houston left. I wouldn't be surprised if they left. Uh, but I don't anticipate too many black churches leaving unless uh, same-sex marriage becomes mandatory for everyone. And then I think you're going to see some some rumblings in the black church mm-hmm. uh, that white will catch white liberals off guard. Um, I, I'm going to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I honestly um, am of the mindset, and I disagree wholeheartedly with the Christmas covenant. I understand where our brothers and sisters in Africa and Asia are coming from with mm-hmm. that. But I disagree because to me, it furthers white supremacy by not allowing American Methodists to be under the leadership of the global church. Which it should and be. Still yes. making, uh, we, before the, the, the special session of the general conference, 
the and a petition on the table for the the 2024 general conference was a global book of discipline mm -hmm. we wanted to get everybody together on the same page since the special session of the general conference there's been a push for a u.s regional conference right. so that americans can write their own book of discipline right i find that to be hypocritical and racist yeah okay you said it <laughs> I, I don't I, disagree yeah you're I, right I, I just feel like if we're going to be this, if we're going to vote on this petition on the Global Book of Discipline, mm -hmm. um, because if we're talking about unity and, and John chapter 17, and then all of a sudden we're going to do our own thing in America because Africa and Asia is doing their own thing, I got some questions. I, uh, I was able to do an interview with uh, Julio Villanculos. Um, of a Mozambican uh, Methodist school. He's one of the voices that's been included in the Christmas Covenant. And I, I offered, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I think he was a great guy. But I pushed back saying a lot of similar concerns around unity and accountability. And my impression when it was all over is that he did not disagree with me. Um, so I, I wonder how much Western voices have come to the Philippines and Africa and said, we want you to be able to do what you need to do without us getting in the way. So let's just give you the authority you want. And there hasn't, and they've avoided any kind of critical thought to, okay, so, but then the Americans are going to go crazy left, right? You know, like, or, you know, and I think a lot of Africans have just given up on us. And when all the conservatives are running for the door, why wouldn't they give up on us when so many are already given up on us? You know, so it's just it's a question of how far gone is the project. Um, you know, I, I would be much less concerned about the black church in America if there was still an exit provision after 2023. But in all likelihood, there's not going to be. A G General Conference 2024 is probably not going to pass the protocol for peaceful separation. And... Uh, a lot of churches are going to be trapped that don't want to be. So I, I don't know how to feel good about that. I've been really conflicted personally going, I should stay and fight for other conservatives or it's it's too far gone. I got to get out of here. I got to think of my churches. Um, so I don't know. I, have you felt similar conflict or do you, have you just been able to be more holy than me and, and just trust God more? Well, I think when we get to general conference, it'll look more like a debate at the General Assembly of the United Nations than a debate in the United States Congress. Um, and so I do hear your, your concern about Western voices influencing Africa and Asia. And I've heard that of both liberal Western voices and conservative African voices. I think uh, as, as uh, American voices in Africa and Asia. I think um, one of the things I've noticed about uh, Africans and Asians is they're much more attuned to what's going on in the United Nations than the average American citizen. Right, yeah, is. I've noticed that too. So I think they have a sense of empowerment that I think we just take for granted in terms oh. of negotiation. Okay. Um, and I think also if our seminaries have bought into theological liberalism, Mm -hmm. Our eight boards and some of our boards and agencies have bought into theological liberalism. And we're not pushing the orthodoxy of 
John Wesley. One of the papers that I'll be presenting, the paper I'll be presenting, Lord willing, at the American Academy of Religion Conference mm-hmm. um, is dealing with the 1700th anniversary of the Council of Nicaea, which is coming up in 2025, and how Africans and Asians were at the table at the Council of Nicaea and were the major players. And so when we define orthodoxy, mm-hmm. we're really defining it um, as something that Africans and Asians created, not in terms of, and, and Europeans, because Europeans were there. But when we critique orthodoxy, what we're inherently doing is critiquing the traditions that the Africans and Asians set up because we want the 19th century German historical uh, theological liberalism to be the standard. And that has never been debated at a council. And so when I wrote uh, White Anglo-Saxon Protestantism is going to be on trial uh, and and, or did the video White Anglo-Saxon Protestantism is going to be in trial at the General Conference in 2024. Mm is because we never put theological liberalism on a table and said, this is up for debate. Mm-hmm. We always put orthodoxy up on the, at the table and said, this is up for debate. And we're not just gonna, we're not gonna do that. And, and it's the Council of Nicaea, which established the creed that we have in the back of the United Methodist hymnal. We're not gonna put up African, ortho, African Asian and European orthodoxy up for trial to be critiqued without dealing with theological liberalism of the 19th century German project, as though this is going to be the standard. And those of us who have degrees in African-American studies are just going to accept that carte blanche. That's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to imagine. So that's, that's obviously partly what I'm trying to do with, with my plain spoken channel. I'm trying to have these conversations out in the open that usually happen behind closed doors among sympathetic parties. I, I think those echo chambers really haven't done service at all. And then the language of being a big tent, I understand how people were maybe naive enough to use that for the first decade, but I think it's just been willful um, ignorance at this point to continue using that that terminology. I, I think there does have to be a robust theological conversation about, okay, you say that, that Orthodox Christian theology is problematic. Okay, let's really hash that out. Let's do a cross-cultural historical study of what these beliefs actually result in. And then let's expose your beliefs to the exact same scrutiny and see how it holds up. Um, I'm very confident in such an analysis, but the, the, whole ro- the whole role of postmodern ideology and critical theory more broadly is just to tear down. It's not to build up, you know, to, to provide something that's beyond questioning while, while providing for caricature and ad hominem and, and uh, cult, uh, historical revisionism to justify throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So uh, I, I probably could speak about that in a more neutral tone, but uh, I, it's dishonest for me to pretend I don't have my own feelings on this. Um, I feel like you and I are brothers. I feel like you and I are both committed to the same project of not just Chris, Orthodox Christianity, but the, the balance that John Wesley himself created in, in, the, in the Wesleyan revival movement. We, we should draw our time to, I could talk to you all day, quite honestly, but um, we should draw our time to a close. And I would like, what I would like is an exhortation from you on where you're home, hopeful or what you think would be fruitful. If somebody has watched our whole conversation, and there probably won't be a lot, 
but what's what's a closing meditation something that you would encourage any viewers and me personally just to be thinking on praying on and um and then i'd uh after we talk a little bit more i'd like to have you pray for us if that would be okay um i guess uh i was just reading acts 15 yesterday um and it had there was the question of the gentiles that was brought before the council at Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And a decision was made that they should abstain from blood, abstain from food sacrificed to idols, abstain from um, the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. Right. Um, I, I guess the, the, the thought that I have is that the gospel spread uh, through Paul, through Barnabas, even though they split ways over John, uh, through Paul and Silas, uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas were able to reconcile. John was uh, uh, accepted, um, excuse me, Mark, uh, I'd say John, that's what the book of Acts, but yeah, it's Mark. the Mark, the gospel writer, right. um, who was Libyan. Uh, and and brought Christianity to Egypt in the first century to Alexandria and is the the patron saint of Egypt for Coptic Christians in Egypt. Mm -hmm. um, this gospel changes lives. Mm -hmm. um, what I see happening in the global south is a move of the spirit that I don't see happening in many of our churches in the northern hemisphere. Mm -hmm. Um, and so uh, the concept of the Trinity was something that was, again, debated at one of the councils where Africans, Asians, and Europeans were at the table together. I see the Holy Spirit moving in places that are open to the Spirit of God. What I don't see is the Holy Spirit moving in places that are open only to science that are not open to the spirit of God mm -hmm. and believe that it is the Trinity is God, Jesus, and science, <laughs> as opposed to God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. We're just got, yeah, I heard so, you calling them the, the, the dynamic duo, just got dynamic duo. Yeah, you got to have that, that yeah. robust pneumatology, that Holy Spirit. Yes. I'm with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Keep going. And what I see is churches closing and becoming coffee shops and bookstores in the Northern Hemisphere and loss in co-working spaces, where in the Southern Hemisphere, they can't find enough places. They're opening churches in, in open courtyards. Mm -hmm. um, we call them fresh expressions in the United States. Sure, yeah. Um, I see a spirit of God moving, and uh, if this is an authentic move of the spirit of God, we need to pray about it. Uh, what was it said in Acts 5? If this movement is of the spirit, we will not be able to stop it. Right. Um, and if folk in the Northern Hemisphere don't get a move of the spirit of God, uh, we will follow in the Methodist Church, we will follow along the path of the Episcopals, the Presbyterians, mm -hmm. the Lutherans will be closing. Now, I honestly believe we planted entirely too many churches in the United States than, say, the Catholics. Okay. Um, 
So a lot of our churches may close because it's just the model, the church growth model of the 18th, 19th centuries was was overly zealous in comparison to the Catholics. Okay. Um, but uh, there is churches that are closing because we're more focused on culture. We're more focused on science and um, folks are not getting saved and folks still need Jesus. And that requires for you to be in touch with the spirit of God. Mm-hmm. And if that spirit uh, leads you to places other than Europe, and 19th century German theological historical criticism, then I think you need to follow. All right. Hey, that's a great exhortation. Uh, there's a lot more there. Hey, um, when we, we originally started emailing about talking, the second topic that you were uh, willing and eager to talk about was the role of science in Western theology. Scope's monkey trial, the, the extreme polarizations of, of fundamentalism versus liberalism. Um, I think that would be uh, a, a, a very engaging topic as well. So anyone who watches this, if you have any uh, encouragement for me and Odell to do this again, feel free to, to comment or write us personally. Um, but Odell, you've given me a ton to think about today. I, I rejoice that uh, you and I have so much in common, even though we're very far away from each other. Um, I've, I've personally been encouraged by you. I, I just am excited for your future ministry uh, within a Wesleyan vein, and um, I'm, I'm eager to keep in touch with you. So thank you for setting aside the time to to hang out with me and, and encourage me and teach me some today. Thank you, brother. Would you um, would you be willing to pray for us before we conclude? Yeah, Jeffrey, first I want to thank you for the invitation. Yes, sir. Um, it is uh, greatly appreciated. Uh, I had to um, put this, uh, I haven't written anything in a while, and I, and I haven't spoken to anyone in a way because I was angry after the jurisdictional conference. The Southeast right. Jurisdictional yeah, that was rough. Conference. Yeah. Um, and so I had to take some time to um, just calm down. Um, but I, I really do see that um, if we are as um, brothers and sisters in Christ going to uh, grow. We, we've got to have conversations with people that we don't necessarily agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there's a word that we were taught in, in seminary in the doctorate program that I hold epistemological humility. Right. Um, we've got to have some humbleness about what we believe. Mm-hmm. So I thank you uh, for the conversations that we've had uh, on email um, and for also broadening uh, my perspective. I appreciate it. I'm glad it hasn't been a waste. <laughs> Amen. Appreciate Amen. It. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, let's pray. Yes, sir. Uh, God of our fathers and God of our mothers, we pray that uh, your spirit will guide us into all truth and that you will be glorified amongst the nations. We pray that uh, your word will not return void and that um, the God who heals, the God who saves, the God who delivers will continue to operate in the lives of believers around the world for the building up of your kingdom 
so that um, you will reign even when men and women go to war and disagree that you have uh, your people in place to bring about shalom. And so in this time of turmoil in the church and the time of turmoil in the world, we pray that your spirit will guide us, your spirit will lead us, and that we will continue to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Odell, you're snowed in today. You got that winter blizzard. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope uh, I hope this uh, conversation ends in you going and making some hot chocolate and kicking your feet up and enjoying the rest of your day. Amen. And writing the dissertation. Yes. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, get to it. I look forward to reading that when it comes out. So keep keep it coming. We'll do it. It'll be on a completely different topic, but I thank you for the opportunity of speaking with you. Today. Yeah, right on, right on. All right, we'll talk soon. Take care, Odell. All right, God bless. Blessings. Bye-bye.